Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Conversations in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, Novel Therapies Targeting the Immune System for Elderly and Unfit Patients. During this segment, we'll be discussing novel therapies that target the immune system. I'm Dr. Dan Pollier. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in the Division of Hematology, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Tapan Kadia and Dr. Eunice Wang. Um, so guys, you know, I, I think this is an area of a lot of reasonable enthusiasm, but also, you know, some uh, some significant concerns. Um, uh, Topin, do you want to just sort of talk first about um, on the concern front, you know, why it may be that AML patients would not respond well to an immune-mediated approach? Yeah, Dan, thanks. I mean, like you said, the immune system, the immune-mediated approach in AML is very, very enticing, and we really want it to work, but for so far, we've seen lots of challenges along the way. We know that, for example, uh, after allergenic stem cell transfer, we do get some GVL or graft-versus-leukemia effect that the T-cells from the donor may be helping prolong remissions in our patients who get transplant, and we hope that with our new therapies that are available and that are becoming available including PD-1, PD-L1 antagonists and various antibodies, that we can actually uh, sort of harness that immune system without doing a stem cell transplant to still maintain uh, good responses. But it turns out that AML is a different beast, a very different beast than, let's say, even ALL, uh, distant cousin in, in leukemia. And the fact is that the AML has multiple issues. Number one, what is the target in AML? As in ALL, we have CD19, which seems to be a very novel target, even CD20 which you can target completely and not worry about B-cell aplasia because it's not necessarily life-threatening. Um, you, you have a great target that's 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 uh, stable. Uh, we don't have such great targets in AML. We look at CD33, which may be present on a portion of the cell, CD123, but also present on other cells. So you get sort of off-target toxicity. Sometimes you lose these antigens, so you have clones that escape. And then most primarily, you have a really sort of immunosuppressive bone marrow microenvironment where AML tends to, 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 to colonize and segregate. We know that there are increased myelin-derived suppressor cells, which can actually thwart a lot of the uh, T-cell activity. Uh, a lot of there's actually, in fact, this is one of the reasons to use PD-1, PD-L1, but it didn't work out. There's a lot of upregulation of PD-L1 in the AML blast, which actually thwart and lead to exhaustion of the localized T-cells. There's infiltration of Tregs in the microenvironment that can prevent the immune system from activating completely. So there are a lot of challenges not only the target, but also the microenvironment that we're treating that actually inhibit a lot of our immune therapies from working well. But, you know, we've, we've got some we've got some good leads, I think. I agree. And, and on that front, you know, one um, area to discuss would be, you know, the potential for CD47. And so when we're talking about CD47 mediated approaches, we're kind of talking about harnessing the innate immune system and I th I find this fascinating, and you know, and 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 maybe this is our way in in AML. But uh, the idea essentially is that you know CD forty seven gives off is is it, it's it's responsible for a quote unquote don't eat me signal, 
And that's kind of what allowed cancer cells that uh, overexpress this to evade detection um, by the innate immune system, specifically the macrophages. And so, you know, it's now been shown in multiple cancers, including uh, AML and, and MDS, that CD47 is overexpressed in those situations. And, and that can... Um, uh, that that get, that can potentially be one of the contributing factors to this disease uh, ability to to sort of grow and um, and and spread. And so, you know, a lot of the preclinical data around um, interrupting CD forty seven and then allowing these tumor cells to be recognized and and sort of uh, um, neutralized by the innate immune system was really pretty compelling and exciting. Um, and so, um, Eunice, uh, you know, have, have you had any direct um, experience with use of any of these CD47 blocking agents? And if so, you know, what's been your experience with them? So, yes. Um, thanks, Dan. I would agree. The, um, the theory and the, the thought that we could harness this unappreciated arm of the innate immune system for ML therapy was extremely exciting and, and, and very novel. And the data was really outstanding in these preclinical models. So we were part of the original phase one study looking at the, the naked CD47 antibody, the megrilumab, uh, and combined with uh, azacitidine based on the fact that in preclinical models, azacitidine would upregulate CD47 expression and therefore make the megrilumab that much more effective by uh, allowing that mechanism to be much more um, pivotal for the survival of those AML cells. And so um, that particular antibody had a unique side effect because it turned out that senescent red cells also expressed up high levels of CD47. So when one combined azacitidine with the megrilumab, we did see a, a, an acute hemolytic reaction, which occurred in probably 10, 20% of our patients with the initial dose. And that led to even acute drops in their hemoglobin of uh, one, two, even three grams. And you can imagine these elderly unfit people with some underlying comorbidities, cardiovascular, and pulmonary, that there were some significant consequences to that acute hemoglobin drop. Um, so with some additional red blood cell phenotyping and having those units available and sort of preparatory, maybe transfusing the patients in advance, we were able to make our way through that, um, that toxicity, which did, just to be honest, lead to some deaths. However, um, the initial data showed that the immune this immune pathway might be particularly active in patients that have P53 mutant disease. And as we all know, P53 mutant AML, particularly with um, high variant allele frequencies, uh, with double P53 mutations, and with complex karyotype, is a horrible subset of AML and is found potentially an increased frequency in our elderly and unfit individuals who may have a secondary uh, a secondary AML. So we were initially extremely excited to see uh, median survivals, uh, response rates 50-60% to 53 mutant as well as survivals of 10 to 12 months in, in early phase data. Uh, and we were excited to take the drug into three phase three studies, enhance one, enhance two, and enhance three, looking at um, the combination of megrilumab azacitidine versus azacitidine alone and high-risk MDS and, and, and P53 mutant AML, and then a combination even combining it with venetoclax azacitidine and enhance three. 
unfortunately, you know, we did, and those studies have still have issues, maybe when you, the same issues you have in a multi-center study where you have increased toxicities, but unfortunately, both Enhance 1 and Enhance 2 have subsequently been closed because interim analysis have shown no difference in overall survival endpoints as compared to azacitidine alone. Now, that data is still um, in press release form. We don't have the actual subset data. That hasn't, however, diminished our enthusiasm for this pathway, potentially maybe not that drug. So there are another different agents. Um, there is a Pfizer compound. There are other drugs that are trying to not only target the just a naked using a naked antibody against CD47, but try to activate that sort of alpha pathway on macrophages by binding on activating FC receptors on the macrophages via dual activation approach. There might be better antibodies to CD47, small fusion proteins that again might more potently activate that arm of the immune system. So I don't think that we've given up completely on that. Um, but I think some of our enthusiasm initially has been a little dampened by, as always, a negative phase three randomized control trial. Yeah, uh, thanks for that really nice detailed answer. It really, um, you know, shows your kind of uh, involvement in this project for uh, a really long time. Tap, do you have any thoughts on like, the construct here, like an antibody versus a fusion protein and what impact that might have on efficacy or toxicity? Yeah, no, I, I actually, we've used both. We've used MAGRA, obviously, we see a lot of hemolysis, as you said, in some patients who have these senescent red blood cells. We've seen less hemolysis with SERP-alpha uh, binding drugs. So I think toxicity-wise, those that are, that are interacting with SERP-alpha, which is on the macrophages and not on the red cells per se, uh, leads to a little bit less hemolysis, but you're still activating the CD47 sort of alpha pathway. Whether it's an antibody or a fusion protein, it's not clear that there's any difference yet. I think the uh, the, the schedules of the drugs can be a little bit different because of the um, the size of the drug and how often you have to give it. Uh, so those are the differences, but we haven't seen much yet in terms of uh, differences in those, except for the hemolysis and less toxicity with the sort of alpha in, uh, engaging drugs. Thanks. Let, let me stay with you, Top, on the on the next topic I wanted to talk about in this sort of neighborhood. And that that's the idea of TIM3 inhibition and specifically the drug sabatolimab, which is under development. Yeah. Any thoughts about the impact of this target? It's sort of um uh it, it, where it fits in, in in the immune therapy landscape and and what, what you think about it future for, for drugs that target this? Sure. You know, I think there was a lot of excitement about TIM3. So TIM3 is, is another one of these sort of immune checkpoint or immune dampening type molecules, right? They're present on T cells, they're present on macrophages, it's present on Tregs, it's present on NK cells. And so what T, TIM3 does is TIM3 interacts with a protein or a, one of the ligands is collecting nine. And when it interacts with that, TIM3 then sends a signal to whether it be the NK cell or the cytotoxic T cell, the macrophage, to sort of reduce the immune response. And so if you have TIM3 that's present on these and it interacts with the galactin 9 that's present on the malignant stem cells or the malignant tumor cells, in this case, leukemia, then you'll have sort of a dampened effect. And in a way, the leukemia is protecting itself from immune attack by sort of stimulating TIM3. In fact, TIM3 also, I think, binds to phosphatidylserine, which actually activates the immune system. So it kind of sops up phosphatidylserine and doesn't allow T cells to get activated. So in general, it's sort of an inhibitory immune um, um, kind of protein. Now, if you had an antibody, sabatolimab, that blocks TIM3 and blocks this interaction with galactin 9, then potentially you can have 
uh, an activated immune system, whether they be T cells or macrophages or NK cells. I think one of the the, the advantages or, or, or what seems nice about this is that it's it's on so many of these different immune cells that you can sort of target all of them and have it activate the entire immune family, if you will, in the microenvironment to attack the, the malignant cell. And so it was first studied in, in MDS, right? Because there was a, there was a lot of uh, excitement in MDS. And unfortunately, the MDS study has not borne out positivity uh, in terms of activity in MDS. That being said, I think there's still potential for acute myeloid leukemia. I think there are several studies that are going on, including one that's going to be presented at ASH. It's looking at TIM3 uh, in the setting of what I discussed in a, in a different podcast about sort of minimal residual disease, sort of in the setting of where there's very low burden of disease in a maintenance setting or even post-transplant. And so there's a study, I think it's an oral presentation, looking at post-transplant sabatolumab to sort of augment the immune system that's left behind. So the the, the, the donor immune system to try to provide surveillance for any residual AML cells that are left behind. So I think there's still maybe um, some potential to combine TIM3, the sabatolumab, with things like azacitidine uh, or other immune therapies in patients with low-level minimal residual disease. But I think it's an interesting target. I, you know, lots of, again, as, as, as Eunice pointed out, there have been several large studies, including one in MDS, that didn't sort of meet what we wanted to see. So there's been some dampening of enthusiasm, but I think we need to keep pushing. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, um, it's yet another strategy to sort of weaken the immune system to kind of help um, uh, help eradicate the tumor and the extent to which our patients have that capability, especially in the multiply relapsed or heavily pretreated areas is, you know, rightfully a question, but perhaps like you suggested, we should really think about this in low-level disease areas. Maybe that is, uh, you know, something within the power of the patient's immune system to sort of work out. And, and as you said earlier, you know, a, a great example of this being a successful strategy in general in AML is the fact that there's a graft versus leukemia effect when it comes to allogeneic stem cell transplants. Um, so just in the, in the remaining um, minute or so, um, you know, I, I'm very intrigued by um, uh, specifically uh, trying to weaponize NK cells. So we've had a little bit of discussion about this uh, um, leading up to now, but there are some abstracts last year or so, and now some press releases too, showing some activity. Eunice, do you have any any uh, thoughts on on this as a as a strategy, sort of adoptive NK cells, and um, and 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 how that might have a future in our field? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've been a little bit, as you said, disappointed. I mean, I don't think we need to give up on some of these macrophage or other uh, TIM3 approaches. I mean, I think that the early FLT3 inhibitors, of which nobody knows their names anymore, were completely ineffective. And now we have very potent uh, FLT3 inhibitory targets, uh, inhibitors for us. So in terms of NK cells, I think that there's been a lot of data, a lot of disappointment with the T-cell directed or T-cell activating approaches, mostly because we think these elderly unfit people um, probably don't have very potent uh, T-cells. They're exhausted, they're T-regulatory, they're suppressed by MDSCs, as Tap mentioned. So there just might not be an active enough T-cell component in these patients inherently, intrinsically, to really be stimulated by even our most potent approaches. So looking at other arms of the immune system, the NK cell arm is not HLA-mediated. It's an arm that's very active against viruses and effectives, and it's incredibly potent. 
And we have found, and you mentioned recently, abstracts for the, uh, the harvesting and infusion of activated NK cells, CD56 positive with or without interleukin-2, um, uh, harvested from normal donors or even placental sources, actually have demonstrated efficacy in terms of blast reductions and responses. And this is something that seemed like sort of like an outlier approach. You know, we were really T-cell focused for so many years, given the success in the solid tumor world, that this was sort of like, well, why would, and what are NK cells? But now we're coming back and saying, you know, in myeloid disease, the T-cells are maybe not where the money is. The, the, and when we think about our therapies and we think about the immunosuppression that our patients face, it's largely in that T-cell component, right? And uh, the, and so we can't necessarily fix the Tregs and the MSDCs and the exhaustion, but if there is an active functional NK cell cellular therapy that we could use, that may be where the true immune active therapy lies. Uh, the other approach is I know that people are trying to put chimeric antigen receptors into NK cells to even make them even more potent. Or maybe if the patient's own T cells are not potent enough, we could do CAR T therapy, just like we do for ALL. So I think there are people that are still trying to salvage that T cell approach and translate it into um, myeloid malignancies. But I don't know whether that's really the way to go. I mean, we have to go where the biology of the disease leads us, not where we think it should, right? What do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, It'll, you know, we'll, we'll kind of continue on this path. And, you know, the last uh, five, six, seven years, we've found success and by doing just that. And so I'm optimistic that that'll continue in the future. Um, but this, this is just a great discussion, everyone. Thank you so much. And thanks to our audience for, for joining us for this segment on novel therapies targeting the immune system in AML. And please be sure to click on the landing page for this activity to claim your continuing education credit, to access supplemental slides, as well as other topic segments. Thank you guys so much. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.